You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's conversation is with Patrick Deneen, the David A. Potenziani Memorial Associate Professor of Constitutional Studies at the University of Notre Dame. We sat down with Deneen in the Gavin House Library to discuss his recent best-selling release, Why Liberalism Failed. Good morning and welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I'm the Communications and Events Coordinator for the Institute, and together with Mark Franzen, the Institute's Programs Coordinator, I'm delighted to be here with Patrick Deneen, author of the number one new release in political philosophy, Why Liberalism Failed, out with Yale University Press last month. At the invitation of the Institute, Professor Deneen last night delivered his first public lecture on the book since its publication, speaking to an audience of nearly 200 people on the campus of the University of Chicago. Later today, Professor Deneen will also lead a seminar for graduate students and faculty here at Gavin House, home of the Lumen Christi Institute, on Tocqueville's classic work, Democracy in America. Professor, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand that you have a bit of a history here at the University of Chicago. Can you tell us about that? I attended for one year the Committee on Social Thought uh, from 1986 to 1987, uh, I began my graduate studies with the intention of uh, eventually making a PhD, um, and then decided uh, toward the end of that year uh, that I needed a bit of a break from schooling. And uh, at that time, the committee was in a time of transition uh, between kind of its founding generation and a generation that hadn't yet kind of arrived on the scene. Uh, so decided to, uh, to, to, to think about going elsewhere, but uh, two main things were really quite formative for me. One of them was uh, having been here when uh, Alan Bloom was, was teaching here along with a course uh, he taught with uh, Saul Bellow, and they taught a course together uh, on Shakespeare, and that uh, uh, was one of, the, one of the greatest intellectual feasts of my life. And the other was a course that I took, a year-long course I took with the great classicist David Green, who translated many of the Greek classics uh, along with Richmond Lattimore. And um, we, we did a year's course on the Odyssey. And that, that book ended up being the subject of my eventual dissertation at Rutgers University and, uh, in a sense, lost, launched the Odyssey of my career. So uh, I'm very grateful, even for just a year here at the University of Chicago. The Odyssey of your career has taken you to uh, this point at which your book is massively popular. You're doing interviews and symposia in France and Australia and other foreign countries. For listeners who are not so familiar with the book, tell us briefly about its thesis and maybe some of the origins of the thought that led you to writing it. Many people have asked me why I wrote this book for this moment. And in fact, uh, I wish I could say I wrote the book for this moment. Uh, there's a, a lot of, in a sense, luck in terms of if a book hits the right time. This is a book that's been in gestation for many years, uh, at least a decade. I've been writing about these themes, speaking about these themes for quite a long time. It really arises from, I, I suppose very deeply from my own intellectual growing and deepening uh, intellectual formation in the Catholic tradition, the deepest anthropological assumptions, the theory of human nature that lies at the heart of Catholic teaching and Christian teaching more broadly, and how I came to believe, uh, as well as through my study in political philosophy, that 
liberal political philosophy, this philosophy that really has in many ways launched the political regimes of modernity, certainly uh, the American regime among others, was really at a deep level fundamentally incompatible uh, with the Catholic understanding of the human person. Not just different, but in many ways antithetical to the Catholic understanding of the human person. So while my book is not explicitly a Catholic critique of liberalism, in fact, I wrote it in order that it would be readily, I hope, comprehensible as a critique coming from a philosophical standpoint, based in reason and a certain amount of experience. Nevertheless, I would say the sort of gestation of this idea comes you know, deeply from a, a belief system that I find to be better than, and indeed a, a profoundly more a truer understanding of human nature. Uh, that would necessarily lead to a different way of conceiving of our political, social, and uh, more comprehensive ways of life together. Let's stay on this topic of the relationship between Catholicism and, and your own faith and the criticisms you take up in the book. Some critics I've seen who have responded to your work in the past five, six, seven years have invoked the thought of Arrestus Brownson as a better paradigm for thinking about the relationship between the Catholic Church, Catholicism, and the American founding. Can you say just briefly where your views you think diverge with Brownson and where perhaps they converge? So Brownson, uh, in, a, uh, in a book that he wrote called The American Republic, after his conversion to Catholicism, wrote a book in which he, he was also uh, had concluded that the official philosophy of America, its Lockean individualistic social contractarian philosophy, was in fact contrary to Catholic understanding of the human person. He in many ways, my view is very similar to Rusty's Brownson in this regard, and I've learned a lot from Brownson. Uh, but Brownson went on to argue uh, in a very famous phrase that he picked up from uh, one of the bishops uh, in the 19th century. He argued that the founders built better than they knew. Uh, so while they thought they were building the first great liberal nation based upon the liberal philosophical tradition, in fact, they were building a, a kind of a nation, in fact, that was different than the one they intended and better than the one they intended and in fact drew from a longer and deeper tradition within the natural law tradition. And so many of my best friends and favorite interlocutors hold the Brownson view that we can find ourselves very much not only at home in America as Catholics, but in fact rise to its quite vigorous defense because it is in fact a nation better uh, than what its officially, official philosophy has suggested that it is. And then, in some ways, it becomes kind of an empirical question of whether that's true, whether, in fact, we see that uh, this better-than-intended nation is the nation that we have. And that, to me, is an extremely interesting debate, and one I particularly enjoyed having over many years with my dear friend and, and uh, much-missed friend, uh, Peter Lawler, who passed away uh, this past year, who was, in many ways, the greatest articulator of this position. Peter's view was that sort of everything was sort of both always getting worse, but also getting better. And so one couldn't sort of definitively say that things were declining. My view is that things are kind of getting worse, particularly <laughs> for this Catholic understanding in the American context. Whether or not one of us is empirically right or not, I think it's an interesting question. I do think the interest in my book is a reflection of a growing belief that I might be right. Do you think that the church, or at least the American church, has been complicit with the tendencies that you critique in the book? John Courtney Murray famously advocated a kind of synthesis between the faith and the ideals of the founders. Do you think the American hierarchy has not been resistant enough to the 
parasitic trends that you're identifying? Do you think that the teaching church in general should focus more upon the sorts of critiques that you're leveling in the book? I actually think it is essential for the learned members of our church, some of whom are in the hierarchy, some of whom are not, or those who are in a position to speak in these ways to members of the hierarchy to engage to engage these questions. It's quite right that in the particularly in the middle part of the 20th century, John Courtney Murray being a, a major figure in this move within the church of finding itself in a much more friendly stance toward the liberal order and finding in many ways, of course, through developments in doctrine and uh, especially during Vatican II, uh, eliciting in uh, Dignitatis Humanae, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, finding a kind of compatibility between liberal notions of religious liberty that you see, for example, enshrined in the First Amendment and the church's, I think, development of its understanding of religious liberty that a, that a society didn't have to be ordered and in some ways governed and ruled by the church. I'm not uh, opposed in, in, to this doctrinal development, but this doctrinal development, in a way, it was also based on an empirical assumption, which was that religious liberty would allow for the orientation of political society in a, in a free and open way toward the truth. And I think you know, part of my argument in, in, in the book, and I'm not alone in this, there's thinkers, Brad Gregory, my colleague at Notre Dame, David Schindler, both junior and senior uh, at uh, the JP2 Institute, have, I think, in a, in a very I think profound and deep way suggested, I think you used the word parasitic, uh, that um, liberalism in some ways ultimately, um, through the kind of guise of religious liberty, propounds itself ultimately as a comprehensive doctrine and finds it intolerable, particularly to have public expressions of a, of a contrary anthropological set of assumptions. And I think what we're, you know, again, it's an empirical debate. Are we seeing, especially in, especially among sort of progressive liberals today, the aggressiveness against the church and the church's uh, longstanding teachings, especially on matters of sexuality, are we seeing a kind of new form of intolerance born of a deep set of faith commitments that were always in some ways baked into the pie? Or is this an aberration from the sort of older liberalism that actually claimed to be tolerant toward all, all religions? Again, here there's a very interesting debate, and there are very smart people aligned on both sides of this debate. And it's not just a theoretical debate. Much follows from this. I, I take the view that in some ways the church was justified in being relatively confident at the time that it reached the settlement with liberal orders, but that subsequent history should lead us to reevaluate the church's relationship to liberal orders, not to seek its overthrow per se, uh, but, to, but to prepare Catholics for, in some ways, life as, in, way, in some ways, as being, as, as our, uh, Archbishop Chaput wrote recently, of being strangers in a strange land as opposed to feeling at home in America, that our disposition isn't necessarily one of overthrow. I think that would be imprudent and, and wrong. St. Paul says we should submit to the, to the political orders. But to change our disposition is rather a different thing, uh, and to find ourselves where necessary uh, to achieve a kind of psychic distance from the deepest ordering of the regime might be a necessary preparation for a Catholic in this age. I think you've touched on something very interesting there toward the end. Some of your Catholic reviewers, I think of Ross Douthat, for example, of the New York Times, have criticized the book because in your prescriptions, you don't go far enough, he says, or they say, in offering an alternative political arrangement. So 
I'd like you to speak to where you find your thesis situated vis-a-vis both the so-called integralist approach, which seems to be ascending in some Catholic cultural circles, and also maybe the, the so-called Benedict Option popularized and championed by Rod Dreher in his work. It seems to me that your work is more nearly proximate to Dreher's than to the integralist approach. What might you say to an integralist critic who says that Deneen's right about all this, and the solution is to, is to buck the liberal order and return to or turn toward um, an arrangement in which the state is kind of a servant of the church, if you will. I have actually a, a critic uh, in the uh, Harvard Law School who uh, has, has uh, Adrian pushed Vermeule. me, Adrian Vermeule, uh, a, a dear friend, who has pushed me precisely in the direction that you suggest that I don't go far enough, uh, and suggested that Toward the conclusion of the book, I suggest that Rod Dreher's um, idea of a a Benedict option is one way that Catholics, Christians, but not only Catholics and Christians, I think anyone, uh, secular believers, people who are uh, interested in forming kind of uh, alternative, let's say, um, forms of living that don't uh, reflect the deepest assumptions of the liberal order, that this idea of the Benedict option, or what I would call intentional communities, is a kind of a, 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 something we can do immediately. And that's, that was in that spirit that I suggested that at the end of the book, because I knew people would ask me, what's your, what's your replacement? And my first response is, look, this is a 500-year project that we're living at the tail end of. And the idea that you're going to you know, overturn this by faxing a new constitution or creating a new political order, that, uh, that's the worst form of revolutionary utopianism. Uh, and I think we should deeply resist any such notion. I think that's actually a deeply liberal reaction, the idea that we can simply fix everything if we have the right tool. Um, I think we need to be very patient and understand that the hard work of changing one's order is generational, uh, multi-generational. And my, my contribution, if, it's, if it is to do something long-term, is I hope to inspire young people to study this question and come up with their own suggestions. Um, I'll, I'll make some of my own, but they will be, they will be steps toward a, a goal that I don't expect to reach in my lifetime. And it, it, would, be, um, it would be as bad as what was attempted in, in Russia in, uh, in the early 1900s if we were to do so. So with that said, uh, at the, so at the same time, I, don't, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't categorically say that some form or vision of, I guess, what's, and I haven't done a, a long study of integralism, uh, but some, some way of thinking about how one would incorporate this more Aristotelian and Thomistic understanding of the human person and human society would be something that could be reconceived and ordered anew in some future time. Whether it looks like integralism, I think that people are being nostalgic about in you know under the reign of uh, Louis the Thirteenth or Louis the Twelfth, uh, I'm very doubtful. I'm not trying to point to some time in the past that we should return to. I think term, in terms of baby steps, I'm a great admirer, and this could probably make me unpopular in cer- certain circles, but I'm a great admirer of uh, the recent efforts in Poland to, to institute closing laws for stores on Sundays. And I think the response in American society would be, we're a pluralistic society, why should, it, why should Sunday be the day that stores are closed? And I would simply say, isn't it a good thing, even if you don't believe that Sunday is the day of rest, isn't it a good thing one day of the week not to be dominated by commerce? And yeah, okay, so it's a part of our tradition, longstanding as a Christian nation, that Sunday was that day. I think it could at least be argued, even to people in, in, of a secular view, that this would be a good thing. And so I, if that's integralist, I'm all for it. I don't think it is necessarily, but I think there are things that you can do 
far short of saying that, you know, the Pope should come and rule America, that would move us a step toward um, lives that are lived less under the rubric of, of liberal individualism. Let me close with this question. Here we are at the University of Chicago, and 90 miles away you teach at the University of Notre Dame, both elite institutions with research aspirations. And last night in your lecture on campus, you spoke to the fact that it's lamentable that so many of your students think that they ought to end up in Washington, D.C. and kind of gravitate toward this magnetic center of power and commerce and so forth. To students interested in your work and who are sympathetic to your critique, what would you recommend in terms of giving them broad advice about how to go about bringing into action what you've written? Students at places like the University of Chicago or the Ivy Leagues or the University of Notre Dame. I think for the most part, students are uh, like every human being have certain conflicted visions about their futures. Uh, On the one hand, they want to do good. And I certainly see this among my Notre Dame students. They really are genuinely committed to making the world a better place. And they also want to do good for themselves. Uh, They want to be successful. Uh, They want to make a lot of money or have a lot of power. And of course, these two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think in their minds, they're not mutually exclusive. But I do try to at least encourage them to reflect on whether or not they're entirely compatible. And this, is, this goes all the way back to Plato's Republic, right? Plato at the very beginning of the Republic, or Socrates at the beginning of the Republic, says every job is in a sense two jobs. It's the thing that it's for, so a doctor tries to cure people, and then it's also about money making. And that if you think about it in these terms, there's always a certain tension because one form of that job is other regarding, and the other form of that job is self-regarding. And we are, of course, a mixture of these things, but I do try to encourage them to think, do you have the right balance of these aspirations? And by asking that question, then you can begin to push them to think about, if you want to do good, isn't it possible, isn't it possible that you might actually do more good by going home, wherever that might be, place where you came from, where you know that place, and possibly, I think, for example, a place like South Bend, Indiana, you can do a lot of good there as a talented, ambitious, energetic young person in ways you will never do in Washington, D.C. You can have such an impact in some of these places around America where they have you know, sort of stripped off the most talented people and then shipped them off to New York and Washington, D.C. I've just noticed myself, having moved from Washington to South Bend, how much more of an impact I can have on the life and the benefit, the life of, of my small city now, in ways that I could have never hoped to do in Washington, D.C. So I, I, don't, I certainly wouldn't say everyone should move home. And that's a, in, in many cases in contemporary America, there is no such thing as home. People come from suburban nowheres. But then I encourage them to think, is there another place? If you're not going to move home, is there some place where you could potentially do some good that's not simply attracting you because it's a place of power and wealth and seeming influence? Again, some of our students rightly should end up in Washington and New York and so forth. But there's a kind of now automatic default mechanism, certainly among elite uh, students at elite universities. And it seems to me if we claim that what we're teaching is critical thinking, this is one area uh, where uh, critical thinking is needed the most. Well said. Professor, thank you for your time today and for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.